You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. With great concern, I'm following the humanitarian conflict in Yemen. The population is exhausted by the long conflict and many children are suffering from hunger. Pope Francis had something to say about Yemen before leaving for the Gulf states. Will he be quite as eloquent now that he's there? My guests Mary Dejewski and Peter Goodman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the decreasing list of countries willing to address Nicolas Maduro as president of Venezuela, a new idea of how to oppose Vladimir Putin, and did last night's anodyne Super Bowl halftime performance signal the NFL's retreat from the United States culture wars? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Peter Goodman, global economic correspondent for The New York Times. Welcome both. And we start in Venezuela, where President Nicolas Maduro continues to run out of friends and indeed of people willing to address him as president. A swath of European countries have now followed the lead of the United States, Canada and most of Latin America and recognised Juan Guaido, leader of Venezuela's National Assembly, as interim president. A few countries Countries have remained tentatively or stridently loyal to Maduro, including Greece, Italy and Russia. The latter reported in some circles to have dispatched a small force of semi-official and therefore deniable troops. Um, Mary, first of all, what do we actually know for sure uh, about what Russia is doing in Venezuela? There have been stories about mystery Russian aircraft seen arriving and departing Caracas. At least one report in the Via Gazeta suggesting that Russia is helping Maduro shift gold out of the country, which would be a remarkably old-school manoeuvre. And, of course, these stories about uh, Russian mercenaries, real or alleged. What do you make of it? Oh, it is so, so confusing. My first response to the idea that Russia was flying in mercenaries was to say, fake news, fake news, because it seemed so highly improbable. It's not, well, um, why do you say improbable? Russia does have an amount of form for this sort of behaviour. But why would why would Russia be interested in getting embroiled to that extent? Because I know that people say, well, it's involved, it's lent huge amounts of money, and so maybe the bringing out of gold is not completely... Um, beyond probability. Um, But the idea that um, Russia would somehow um, either clandestinely or more openly um, be involved in actually physically um, any sort of activity in Venezuela, that just seems to me to be very peculiar. Mightn't we have said the the same about Syria a few years ago? No, because I think Syria was a very um, upfront intervention which was done um, with the, quote, invitation of Assad. And although it was um, it was unexpected for the Western world, um, it wasn't something that was done. You know, it wasn't a little green men operation. Um, but, you know, I say my first response was fake news. Um, my second response was to see it as possible... Um, but first of all, in a very limited way. Second of all, to show how Russia has learnt um, from the use of commercial companies, which give you a sort of 
deniability that the state is actually the chief actor. And where have they learned that? They've learned that from the Americans and from the British in Iraq and Afghanistan, where all sorts of military functions are carried out essentially by private companies. And I think that if you're looking at something like that, then this, you know, this, this, this is a sort of mirror image of, um, of, of what Western countries have been doing for quite a while. Uh, Peter, there has been an amount of uh, conjecture verging on outright panic in some quarters about a, a similar intervention being imminent by the United States. And I guess a, a similar question to you to the one I just asked Mary, is there any actual evidence of this either happening or the United States even being remotely interested in doing such a thing? Because most of this talk, uh, so far as I can discern, seems to be driven by Nicolas Maduro himself, um, not for the first time blaming America for his own woes. Well, I mean, Trump himself has come out and said, we're not ruling out use of force here. He has uh, very stridently defended Guaido as the, as the legitimate president. And so that's given this a kind of Cold War feeling. And, you know, let's remember that uh, Trump is someone who will frequently use shock and misdirection and changing of subject to deflect attention from whatever it is he doesn't want to talk about at the moment. You know, we could be one bad Mueller disclosure uh, or indictment of someone close to uh, to Trump or part of the Trump campaign away from uh, a, a situation where the calculus on, on intervention changes. Moreover, you know, let's let's remember that anytime we're talking about Trump and Russia, we we have uh, huge variables that we can't really understand. I mean, we've got large numbers of Trump's former campaign people having pled guilty for illegal dealings with the Russians. We're not that many months removed from Trump standing next to Putin in Helsinki saying, contrary to the findings of his own intelligence, uh, he's taking Putin's word for it that the Russians uh, didn't hack the American election. So there's a lot of variables here, but there are certainly uh, reasons to uh, imagine that the president talking about uh, intervention can't just be dismissed. Uh, Mary, looking at the situation in Venezuela itself and President Nicolas Maduro's situation in particular, has he, I mean, is he very definitely at this point at the stage of moving imaginary divisions around the big map in his bunker? Uh, or, or, or does he actually have a way out of this? Well, it's very hard at the moment to see a way out other than a sort of um, graceful resignation and um, exile somewhere. Um, but I think, and in what I'm about to say, I would actually go back to, to, to Russia, because I have a huge problem with the way a lot of the outside world, and particularly the Western world, has actually dealt with this. Um, and it is, in a, in a way, it's the same problem that the Russians have. I mean, one fine day, you decide that somebody else's country is in such a mess that you transfer your recognition from the guy who's been elected, and you may say, well, the election was suspect, and the opposition boycotted, and there were all sorts of things wrong with the election. But you transfer that recognition to the chairman of the parliament and you say, right, you know, as of such and such a day, 
this case today, um, we don't recognise the, uh, the, the elected president. We we, we recognise the, the the head of the parliament. And to my mind, one of the things that's been you know people to, people are talking about as we've talked about Russians sending mercenaries, Russian Russians flying out gold, and the idea is that somehow Russia's stake in Venezuela is either its financial investment, which it wants to get back, or it's somehow an ideological hangover from the Soviet era that they see it as a model that's somehow closer to theirs. I see it as something very, very different. I see it as um, Russia being very, very wary about regime change in other people's countries. They've seen what what they would say is regime change enacted by others in Georgia and in Ukraine. They've worried about it for years um, that the West and particularly the United States might try to trigger something similar in Russia. And they see this happening in front of their very eyes in Venezuela. And I have to say that I have a problem with that too. Uh, Peter, just finally on this and briefly, what do you make of this manoeuvre that, that Mary has discussed there, this idea of that deciding, well, we can't be dealing with the guy who's actually in charge, so we're just going to decide somebody else is president? Um, I mean, it's not like uh, Juan Guaido is com- entirely without claim. Sure. His rationale is that under the terms of the Venezuelan constitution, sure. if the presidency is vacant, then the person occupying his job becomes president, and their argument is that the presidency is vacant uh, because the last presidential election was somewhat cooked. Sure. I mean, there is there is a constitutional process for this. I mean, what do you do when you're confronted with a state that has essentially failed, where there's, you know, a 10 million percent rate of inflation, where 3 million people have left the country, where women are selling their hair at the Columbia border to come up with uh, money to buy groceries? I mean, this is a, a, ca- uh, this is a catastrophe by, by any measure. We're not talking about armed intervention. We're we're talking about uh, someone uh, acting pursuant to a constitutional process and then holding themselves up for ratification in the international community. Okay, well, let's look now at the United Arab Emirates, specifically Abu Dhabi, currently hosting a visit by Pope Francis. The UAE is a bigger part of the papal beat than might seem immediately apparent, there being many Catholics among the UAE's communities of expat labourers, especially Filipinos. Tomorrow, 135,000 people are expected to attend a papal mass at Abu Dhabi's Zayed Sports City. Today, however, Francis is meeting with Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan and various religious panjandrums. There has been an amount of wondering whether Francis might mention privately or publicly the UAE's participation in Saudi Arabia's pointless rampage in Yemen or the UAE's generally suboptimal record on human rights. Um, Peter, what authority does the Pope have? uh, Actually, not just somewhere like the UAE, anywhere at all at this point. Why do people listen to him? He has an awful lot of people who are Roman Catholics who consider him uh, the voice of God on planet Earth. I mean, that that's that's authority that goes beyond most. I mean, in the case of the UAE, uh, there's, uh, so, there's something like a million Catholics there. A lot of them are Filipino migrant workers, uh, Indian migrant workers. And there are a lot of people who want to hear what he has to say. Now, no, no question, his reputation is not what it was a couple of years ago before the uh, extent of this uh, global sex scandal uh, and the, the widespread perception that uh, the Pope has participated in a, in a really horrific uh, cover-up. Uh, moreover, let's remember that it was just back in November 2017 when the Pope visited 
visited Myanmar then in the midst of uh, the massacre of, of Rohingya who were being driven from the, from the country. And he sat on a stage next to Aung San Suu Kyi and did not mention the Rohingya. So, I mean, certainly he's dealing with significant reputational issues uh, compared to what he, he enjoyed when he first uh, took power. Uh, Mary, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more shortly about Pope Francis's actual record uh, as a, a human rights advocate, but would it actually make any difference if tomorrow he was to stand up in front of 135,000 people at Zaid Sports City uh, and say that the UAE's participation in the war in Yemen uh, should cease, that it's, it's, it's not doing anybody any good, least of all the people of Yemen, uh, and they should knock it off. Would it actually make any difference to anything? Well, I think given that quite a lot has actually been said, both in public and private, and it hasn't had the slightest effect, um, it's hard to see how it would have any effect. But it would certainly, you know, it would resonate around the world. I mean, he would have a platform and it would be maybe more public, more out there um, than any of the interventions that have been made so far. Um, I sort of think we're unlikely to hear that, but that's a different matter. Uh, Peter, you mentioned there uh, his failure to mention the Rohingya people, at least directly, when he was sharing that stage with Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar in right. 2017. Uh, is the simplest explanation that fits the facts uh, where Pope Francis is concerned that whatever moral authority does go along with the office he occupies, he personally doesn't have all that much interest in actually flexing it. Uh, I, that's hard to assess from the outside. I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, access matters when you are heading an institution like the Catholic Church. And you know that your position uh, on any issue is going to offend large numbers of people because when uh, when you're talking about such a vast community of people, uh, any any position is is liable to alienate someone, and so there's a tendency to to sort of stick to the center. Uh, that said, it 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 is it's difficult to. Uh, square the Pope's positions on, on human rights in general with the particulars of that situation? I think it, it, in some ways um, Francis is, is sort of following in uh, a path that was that, that was beaten by um, John, Paul II, John Paul II, who became really the first sort of global Pope in terms of travelling around and using um, essentially a religious platform as a political platform. Um, and I think Pope Francis has been trying to do that to an extent, though um, you know, it's been sort of pointed out in um, sometimes inadequate way. But I think we're maybe losing sight of one thing, which which is quite extraordinary, that you have the head of the Catholic Church visiting the UAE. He's visiting a country which is ruled by sheikhs and which is a Muslim country. Yes, he's going to preach to his flock, but simply the the, the visuals of this are really quite quite stunning. And I actually think it's a very good thing for um, popes to go travelling and for them to go travelling in places where the dominant religion is not actually Catholicism. I think it sends a message that it is possible to talk at least, if not to solve these things. So I think it's generally positive. Peter, do you think his, his visit to the UAE, and it is, I think I'm right in saying, the first papal visit to the United Arab Emirates, is it a good thing in and of itself? Well, it really depends. I think Mary's right that the mere fact that he's there 
is what's significant, uh, and everything else is details. But, you know, the UAE has tremendous interest in presenting itself as a more inclusive and open society. They're sensitive to uh, to investment. Uh, they don't particularly want large numbers of Americans or Europeans uh, criticizing them for their support. Uh, of of the, uh, with the Saudis uh, of of the war against proxy Iranian forces in in Yemen, uh, and uh, they're also dealing with the reality that migrant workers do all the work and have no rights, no civil liberties. Uh, journalists are arrested, dissidents are, are arrested, and so if this becomes a vehicle for the UAE to hold itself up as you know, look at us, we are inclusive, we are members of the of the world community. That's not such a good thing if it leads to people scrutinizing more what's happening on the ground there uh, and understanding that uh, not everybody's Muslim in the Middle East, that that is positive. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Andrew Miller, along with Mary Dijewski and Peter Goodman. Coming up next, has one of Vladimir Putin's most prominent opponents found a new way to get at him? For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Peter Goodman. Opposing the presidency of Vladimir Putin is not the easiest of vocations, but it does have the occasional advantage of providing long stretches of subsidised thinking time. Long-suffering activist Alexei Navalny did a couple of short prison stretches towards the end of last year, during which he conceived of the idea of a new trade union, one which would represent Russian public sector workers wondering what has become of the salary increases promised by Vladimir Putin back in 2012. By some estimations, Russian real incomes will fall in 2019 for the fifth year on the bounce. Uh, Mary, is, is Navalny possibly on to something here? I think he's very definitely onto something. Now, you know, it has to be said that Navalny has really, since he appeared on the public stage, um, he's always been onto something um, because he started um, as one of the first Russian politicians really to use the internet and to use social media. And he had then a single cause, which was his anti corruption campaign. And it was hugely popular. Um, now, it wasn't popular to the extent of being in any way a serious challenge to the power of Putin. But it was, it was certainly a thorn in the Kremlin side um, and it, it spawned all sorts of um, provincial and smaller movements um, and it gained influence that way. Now, for Navalny now to talk about um, founding a new trade union, I think he's latching on, as, as you mentioned, to the living standards question, which is possibly going to get worse over the next... The thing is, Russians are not looking for a new presidential election until 2024, and that is destined to be Putin's bowing out. 
But that leaves quite a long time for any aspiring politician, including somebody like Navalny, to build themselves up a new base. And to choose the um, the mechanism of a trade union is a very interesting thing because there's a lot of sympathy at very popular grassroots level in Russia, a sort of nostalgia for bits and pieces of the Soviet era. And labour security, job security, living standards, um, and for poor people. And to an extent, there's there's a new poor um, of people who are working and people who are in sort of unfashionable jobs. And inequality is almost as sensitive an issue in Russia today and becoming more so than it is in a lot of countries in the West. Um, Peter, is... Is this where Putin is potentially weak, being challenged not on, uh, you know, his, his restoration of the idea of Russia as a great power, which clearly does quite good business for him, but just on the basics of domestic governance, the suggestion that really he's not done a terrifically good job? Well, it's an interesting test of that proposition because for years we've watched Putin defy the seeming law of economics insofar as it interfaces with politics. Uh, He has managed to present uh, Russia as this rising power because of this foreign adventurism at the same time that uh, the domestic economy has been getting weaker and weaker. And let's face it, we're, we're having this conversation in a moment when the global economy is weakening. And as the global economy weakens, there tends to be less demand for oil and other forms of energy, and that's going to hit the Russian economy harder. It's going to weaken more. Uh, That's certainly not going to make living standards go up. So Navalny seems to be betting that if I go after working people who are directly experiencing decline, that will trump all of this, you know, nationalistic flag-waving, look-at-us, projecting power in the world again, uh, and, and, and people will focus on material conditions again. Uh, Mary, genuine non-glib question uh, about this. How big a risk is Alexei Navalny running here to, to his own personal safety? Oh, that is such a difficult question because there's been such a sort of broad assumption that anybody whose personal safety is threatened um, is threatened really by the Kremlin and that anything that happens to them is is engineered by the Kremlin. And that's not that tends not to be often how it's actually happened. Um, that when the previous and possibly most likely um, a opponent of Putin, Boris Nemtsov, um, was assassinated near the Kremlin. Um, that would that that would not. There is no way that that would have been engineered by Putin. There may have because it simply was not in his interests. Um, and you could see that there may have been people who thought that it was something that might please him. Um, and you can see that with some of the other things. But but. If his, if his personal safety is at risk, I wouldn't see it primarily as coming from that quarter. There are there are so that that there is so many um, rivalries, vendettas. Um, Navalny has has enemies um, which are nothing to do with the Kremlin. They're to do with interests in the regions that he threatens with his anti-corruption campaign. So he's already in danger, um, and he may calculate that well. 
he might be in some ways more protected by returning to the limelight and going through this trade union route. I think there's also just uh, just on on the business of trade unions. I, I think it's it's very interesting that he's picked that because if we look right back, and you know, I mentioned John Paul II. Um, Unofficial trade unions and trade unions on a sort of um, Western model um, were something that oppositions in Soviet eras picked and they were very successful with. And you think of Poland, you think of Solidarność as, as actually setting the trend for overthrowing the regime. And it's very early days to talk about that with Navalny. But trade union, the, the, the very idea of a trade union that sets itself um, on the side of the people against established power, I think that has, that, that, that has enormous attraction and potentially it's a very potent idea. OK, well, finally tonight, and continuing with the theme of oppressive, humorless and interminable hegemons ruthlessly crushing any and all opposition, the New England Patriots won yet another Super Bowl last night. The game itself, in which the Pats beat the Los Angeles Rams 13-3, was not a classic, a grim, attritional struggle which commentators gamely struggled to present as one for the purists. However, it was not, as it could not possibly have been, anywhere near as dreary as the halftime show, mostly by Maroon 5, one of those bands who have become absolutely immense without anyone anybody actually knows liking them. Um, Mary, first of all, the game itself, what did you make of the Los Angeles Rams' decision uh, to place the burden of the running game on CJ Anderson as opposed to the more obvious running back Todd Gurley? Is Gurley actually injured or did Sean McVay out-clever himself? Well, you see, as I explained in advance of this, my knowledge of anything that happened um, at the Super Bowl is limited to who was playing, which was the LA Rams and New England Patriots, the score, which I think was 313. Correct. And the fact that it was played in Atlanta. Um, the rest of it, other than the fact that it goes on an incredibly long time, <laughs> and that an awful lot of that time seems to be spent in th- something called timeouts, which I've never understood. Um, so I regret to say that my, um, what's it called, um, after hours quarterback or whatever. Um, I simply Monday can't morning. comment. Monday morning yeah. quarterback. Monday, Monday evening quarterback, UK time. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did stay up till half past three uh, watching the Super Bowl, as I usually do. You need some help with I, that. I do, except yeah. for, the, for the first time in eight years, I actually bet on the winning team. I, I have established <laughs> an awesome record uh, of picking the loser here. Uh, but on the subject of, of losers, Maroon 5, um, Peter, uh, ex- they're an extraordinarily tedious group, but they're also an extraordinarily safe choice. And there has been some suggestion that that was what endeared them to the NFL this year. Is, is the NFL uh, attempting to decontroversialize, if that is indeed even a word itself? I mean, that's the only way the NFL operates. Uh, first of all, you, you're going to force me to read what my brilliant New York Times colleague John Carmonica uh, wrote in describing Maroon 5. He called it dynamically flat, mushy at the edges, worthy of something much worse than derision, a shrug. I think that's too kind. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's face it. There were multiple attempts to get uh, acts edgier and uh, acts that were fronted by African-American artists, and they all said no. 
uh, because the NFL uh, is uh, under tremendous fire from American society for blackballing Colin Kaepernick, this star quarterback of, of, of the San Francisco 49ers who took a position on uh, police brutality against uh, African-American men. And he kneeled during the national anthem uh, for which he was essentially forced into retirement and can't be signed by any team in, in football. And so as a result, African-American artists really didn't want to have anything to do with this show. And, and after Maroon 5 said, yes, they came under tremendous pressure uh, publicly to turn it down, they didn't turn it down, and they delivered this uh, completely uh, forgettable performance that does seem to be engineered to just uh, not cause attention to anything or anyone of note. I mean, some African-American artists did, of course, uh, perform, uh, n- notably with Maroon 5, and Gladys Knight uh, sang the national anthem beforehand to say nothing, obviously, of the many, many uh, African-American players who actually took part in the game. Um, Mary, is there a is there basically a problem that the NFL is avoiding addressing here? I mean, as as Peter correctly points out, there is Colin Kaepernick has been forced into retirement because of a political stance that he quite reasonably took. Uh, nobody I have read or heard from thinks there is any good footballing reason why he's not currently a starting quarterback. Um, ha- have we actually kind of forgotten how, how, how scandalous and monstrous this is? Well, I, I certainly had forgotten, or at least you know, because... A few months ago, this was all at the top of news everywhere, and uh, and now somehow it's not. And so it only just sort of floated back um, with the Super Bowl. Um, but I'd sort of like to return to something slightly more um, frivolous, um, which is... In some ways, it almost seems as though our positions are being reversed because the the UK sports in the UK, national sports, never used to have all this sort of showbiz razzmatazz around them. The most that you got was massed bands during the during the cup final half time. Now you have operatic renditions of the uni, uh, <laughs> of the national anthem, all those things, um, and that is straight borrowing from from the United States. It's all your fault, Peter, basically. And that does bring us to the end of today's show. Uh, Mary Dijewski and Peter Goodman, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Augustin Machelari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. There's music next at 1900's The Monocle Culture Show. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'll be back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.